0: As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me. Us. We want to talk right down to earth.
1: Welcome back to another episode of The Malcolm Effect. And today's episode, I would argue, has been one in the making for two or three years because our guest today is someone who I came across in the nascent stages of my own moving towards radical politics. And I was like, yes. And the reason I said yes is because I thought this is someone who seems to be on the right side of issues always not on the right wing obviously but on the right taking the right stances positions on palestine on the global south is an amazing writer and i'm actually honored and happy to be in conversation with none other than musa springer Salamu alaikum and welcome to the malcolm effect finally
0: <laughs> alaikum and thank you for that very generous introduction two or three years in the making is very funny to think about <laughs> but I'm glad we're here and able to do this and I appreciate the kind words you had to say for sure
1: thank you so much i mean i mean i can only imagine how many people are trying to get you on the show that's why my message didn't reach but we're here now that's the most important thing
0: yeah exactly and the most important <laughs> thing is you know i said yes to you and not everyone else
1: <laughs> exactly 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 so today i really want to do again i I'm aware that I will be unable. I will be unable to do the topic justice, but I guess a brief introduction to the man Walter Rodney, who so many rely on, and so many cite, and so many read. You know, you'll be hard pressed to find a leftist left book club that doesn't have on its syllabus Walter Rodney. So I guess before we get into the more meaty or substantive stuff of Walter Rodney and his life, I want to ask you a personal question. How did you, or what was your discovery or your
0: journey to Walter Rodney? Oh, okay, that's interesting. Starting out the gate right there. I think, well, also, I'm interested in responding to one thing that you said about left book clubs always have mm-hmm. Rodney on, on the reading list. I actually don't find that that's the case. I think that for Black people and colonized people, Walter Mm -hmm. Rodney fills in a similar space that like Marx fills for a lot of Europeans. And so you'd be surprised at how many of these European sort of leftist spaces don't know Walter Rodney, or maybe they Mm -hmm. only share his work when it's like his birthday or the anniversary of his assassination. And in 363 days the rest of the year, they pretend like he doesn't exist. So some parts of his work were kind of groundbreaking and still to this day are not as widely accepted as you might think. But how I personally came to Walter Rodney and became, a, I like to say, Rodneyist was when I was a young student in undergrad. Actually, out of high school, I was familiar with Walter Rodney as like a name and a figure in this sort of pantheon of like Black radical people. Extremely, extremely young in my political journey. And I had no Marxist or materialist politic. Was sort of like a radical liberal, but his name had came up from time to time. Mm -hmm. And in 2013, when I was a student at the Kennesaw State University, Dr. Jesse Benjamin taught a class actually on Walter Rodney that I took. And it was a really cool class because the idea was to infuse the class, not just with sort of learning about Rodney, but, you know, we were all required also to do some kind of organizing or activism as part of the grade for the class. And the class itself was not on the Kennesaw State campus. It was actually on the Morehouse campus, and we would have to carpool and drive all the way into Atlanta from Kennesaw. And so I definitely give him credit for you know, introducing me to Walter Rodney's work in that way. It was also the first year that I began volunteering with the Walter Rodney Foundation. And now, I guess, geez, 10 years, eight, nine, 10 years later, I'm wow. still volunteering. Yeah. And so that was my introduction. We do at the Walter Rodney Foundation a speaker series every year. We bring in radical speakers who are engaging with Rodney's work to speak every week. And that series at the time was actually supported and organized by the students in this class. And I was one of those students. And so that's how I got to meet Asha and Patricia Rodney and the Rodney family, who I love dearly at this point. And yeah, so,
1: you know, that's the brief. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And what, I don't know, amazing introductory story to Rodney. And it's so cool to see that that has persisted in your own politics and your own orientation. So again, I guess my next question becomes, let's speak about Rodney himself. Where is he from? Where
0: did he study? What did his organizing look like? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, I think this is such an important question because a lot of people might just go straight to reading his books, How Europe Gonna mm-hmm. Developed Africa or something like that, and not really think deeply or at all about who he was as a person. But he himself actually would not have wanted that. He was very much he was very much dictated by sort of where he came from and who he was and that and his family and these things kept him very grounded. So he was born in Georgetown, Guyana in nineteen forty two, to a working class family. And this upbringing is pretty important because he kind of goes back and references references it a lot. And it serves as a basis for sort of his organizing and how he views the world. He also married a working class individual, Dr. Patricia Rodney. They had three children. He was very much a family man. And this is one of the th- reasons that he later in his career, like returns to Guyana and begins organizing in Guyana is because he has a really strong, strong love for his country and his family and his fellow Guyanese people. He studied at the University of the West Indies in Jamaica on the Mona campus. He also later went to the School of Oriental and African Studies, aka SOAS, in London, over there with the Pip-Pip Cheerio people. And he earned his Ph.D. in history, specifically African history. He wrote about the history of the Upper Guinea Coast, and it is a at times difficult book to read because it is a very granular history. I mean, he has like a whole chapter on um, the climate of the area and the geography and the wow. land, and you're like, oh, God, get to the point, you know. <laughs> but, uh, it's, it's, it's maybe a, a less political work in some regards, but it is like a very robust history of the area. This book was actually his dissertation, and it was um, quickly turned into a full publication book with a little bit of editing. So, yeah, he earned his he earned his PhD in African history. He was also extremely active in the Black Power movement and sort of trying to take the Black Power movement that was emanating from the US and apply some of the lessons and the organizing and the ideas to the Caribbean. He spent several years in Jamaica where he taught and was also a student. He organized amongst students. He held what were what was known as groundings, where he would essentially go into wherever the working class people were, and you know, this could be in the the parking lots of the slums, in the gullies, in factories or wherever there was large places of workers. And underneath trees or like, you know, just in the sun, he would just teach African history and make it relevant to the people and people would be engaged. So much so Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And so much so that when he was deported or he was denied reentry into Jamaica. Ironically enough, after the 1968 uh, Montreal Conference of Black Writers, and I think you were just recently in Montreal, so shout out to them. But when he was denied a reentry into Jamaica, his groundings and his organizing and his political sort of popular education was so popular, there were massive riots and uprisings across the island. Some of the largest um, that the island had ever seen since the independence movement. And then finally, you know, he worked in Tanzania as a professor and organizer as well in a newly socialist Tanzania at the time when they had their Ujamaa project. There he was instrumental in helping to develop certain programs in their university. Himself, along with Dr. Patricia Rodney, played sort of an active role in organizing to support their socialist system in Tanzania. And then later he returns to the Guyana, and he actually co founds the Working People's Alliance, the WPA. He's one of the founding members in Guyana, where they were organizing against a extremely repressive, borderline fascist dictator, Forbes Burnham, who would ultimately assassinate him with a bomb and a walkie-talkie not too long after. And so actually because of Walter Rodney's organizing with the WPA His emphasis on Pan-African solidarity and the fact that he had traveled all across the socialist world to learn from all these movements from China and Russia to Cuba to Guinea-Bissau and Tanzania and so forth. He was a dangerous man in Guyana. Him and his family had a very hard time living in Guyana for several years and, in fact, had death threats on them, to put it lightly. And he was assassinated in 1980. So that's... Yeah, so that's the brief overview. That's like the biography. And this is what I mean when I say it's so important to understand his life. He mm-hmm. had such an emphasis on doing, not just like writing and sort of exactly. theorizing.
1: Exactly. And I think oftentimes when I think of Rodney, the term guerrilla intellectual comes to mind. And you know he mm-hmm. has his, his writings about the role of the intellectual. And I think in addition to that, one of the things that's so inspirational about the life of Rodney is that he passes so young, but his impact mm-hmm. is so like in comparison I often think about these figures we have who pass away young or taken away from us so young, but the impact still affects us today in in extremely potent ways. So I guess on that potency then, I mean, I'm glad that you in the beginning corrected me by saying that he's a name that on those in the black left will recognize. But my question then becomes, what is it about Rodney's work that is so potent for those on the left or those on the black left at least?
0: Mm, yeah, I think that's such an important question. Because in the last few years, I would suggest maybe the last five years, we've seen sort of a, a reinvigoration of interest in Walter Rodney. There's always been those of us who have, I mean, there's those of us like maybe myself or Dr. Sharice burden stelly shout out to my sis, Dr. CBS, or others who have been like diehard Rodneyists who can find a way to reference and cite him in almost anything. But I think in the last five years or so, there's a renewed interest because people are realizing the relevancy of his work and what he was saying and what he was writing about, in many ways, could have been written within the last year or two when you read some of it. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think what makes his work so potent is that it, it is one of the most comprehensive critiques and histories of colonialism and imperialism ever written. And I say that with my full chest and would love for somebody Mm -hmm. to challenge me on that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And when I say that, I mean, I, I want people to really think about that. It's comprehensive in the sense that if we take even just How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, one of his most popular books, he offers a political, economic, and cultural history of the continent through a materialist lens. And he offers a political economic and cultural history and criticism of colonialism and imperialism and typically when we get these cri- these critiques and these analyses we have a strong emphasis on maybe the political and no mention of the cultural whatsoever or maybe we have you know mm-hmm. a whole book about education under colonialism and there's no mention of political economy whatsoever right but he's able to weave together these threads in such a magnificent way that it's you know, it's extremely powerful. And I think the other part of it too, and the reason I think that his work has remained relevant through the test of time is his emphasis on materialism and historical materialism, specifically like a dialectical analysis. He took the method of Marxism and a materialist conception of history. And, you know, I know these are big words, but essentially he just looked at sort of the material history Mm -hmm. and and walks us through from the pre-colonial times before Europe colonized. Actually, in the history of the Upper Getting Coast, he even goes into, for a few chapters, the history before Europeans even had contact with that region, right? And he walks us through this dialectical relationship for the next 400 years, meaning that he, in great detail, shows that the wealth of Europe is actually the wealth of Africa and that Africa's underdeveloped state is actually not an adjective, but it's a verb that describes a relationship, right? So he, he's one of the first to actually put into words this idea of underdevelopment theory and show that it's like an active process, right? And so these are all things that make him unique in that sense and that make him quite potent. There's also a focus on the agency of the oppressed people or the colonized individuals. Oftentimes when people write these in these kind of subjects and these kind of histories, there is little to no emphasis on sort of what the actual victims of colonization were doing. What was their resistance like? How did their agency shift throughout time? What capacities were they allowed? Walterati manages to do all of this. He speaks about the cultural dimensions of life and civil society in Africa across the continent. And he also sort of links between the global capitalist system and underdevelopment, right? And what I mean by that is he puts this conversation of African development, which at the time when he was writing was very new, a new burgeoning field around the same time that world systems theories was emerging. He puts that conversation sort of within this larger legacy and context of the global capitalist system. In doing so, he allows us to actually better understand the world, the entire global capital system. He shows that Africa's function and role within the global capitalist system was essentially to be a supplier of raw labor and materials, and that it is upon this labor and these materials which were extracted from Africa that the entirety of the capitalist system is built. And Mm -hmm. today, we might take this analysis for granted, right? We might be like, duh, like, I could, you know, but at the time when he wrote this, it was groundbreaking and in fact controversial in many left circles. And then finally, I would say the last thing that really makes him potent, and I know, I mean, I don't know, I'm stuck on that word potent because it's so interesting to me, but he was not afraid to also advocate very fiercely for socialism and for pan-Africanism as the solutions to the historical ills of African people, both on the continent and throughout the diaspora right? He wasn't just writing for the sake of writing. Like I said, he was also actively doing a lot. And so in his writing, in almost all of his books, in his organizing, in his speeches, in his lectures, in his time in Tanzania and Guyana and Jamaica, he's advocating pretty openly for socialism. He's advocating for sort of a a Marxist overturn of society and a Pan-African unity, much very, very similar to that of like a Kwame Nkrumah figure in the way that he envision Pan-Africanism, right, as this revolutionary socialist method. And so I think that message mm-hmm. of socialism and revolutionary Pan-Africanism is not only relevant today, but it's actually the cure and the answer to the ills of today. And so that's, that's why, you know, now, 50 plus years later, you can still see people citing him and quoting him and using him as the basis for political education.
1: I appreciate that answer so much so many of the things that i've come to learn about rodney you touched on particularly i find that let's say in how europe underdeveloped africa what i come to find is that he's so true to dialectical method and -hmm. i think he's true to it in ways that many vulgar materialists have lost or are not and the fact that as you said he mentions the material analysis of culture i mean there's a line where he speaks about in um the role of religion in Africa, for example. And I think Mm -hmm. in the way he does that by weaving this all together, he speaks to and responds to those people that say Marx has nothing to say for the black condition because, you know, Marx is too European or Marx is merely speaking about the development as it pertains to Europe. But I think what Rodney does is that, yes, we can be dialectical materialists in the context of Africa, with our particularities, with our differences, and this method can still speak to our condition. I find that again to add to the word potent, I find that extremely <laughs> potent in the time we, we we live in today.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if, I mean, I really and just appreciate the answer. Yeah, and just to add to that one point, you know, people also have to consider that Walter Rodney, much like Frantz Fanon, stretched Marxism right and stretched the dialectic. And what I mean by that is. He didn't take necessarily the most orthodox approach, right, to, to materialism by applying it to the specific context of Guyana or to Africa or the diaspora. He's actually, in a way, progressing Marxism and doing what Marxism is supposed to do, right? He's taking it and he's exactly. applying it. He's applying it to the specific material conditions of a people and using that to analyze their history. And I exactly. think it's that's such an important... Even when we think of like very fundamental Marxist terms like the base and the superstructure, superstructure, mm-hmm. he has he has a part where he says the reason that Europe designated Africa as a source of labor and materials was economic, mm-hmm. it was but it was racism that w- for which they chose you know outright colonization as the method for that. And then he later he later talks about how in some instances race becomes so strong that it actually over determines the superstructure right yeah and that's a similar argument that fanon makes and a lot of mm-hmm. other third world thinkers make and so he was controversial a little bit at his time for things like this among marxist circles no absolutely
1: and i see why and i think it's so necessary so again we've touched on it briefly but i guess i want to further unpack this as someone who was again this is against the backdrop against the incessant recurring debate on Twitter, that Marx is Eurocentric and, you know, Mm -hmm. Marx is a white man's thing and it has nothing to say for black people. And, you know, we hear this again, I think it comes out every six months on Twitter and it will blow up. But then as someone like Rodney, in the figure of Rodney, who we clearly see by word and deed was dedicated to black liberation. Why did Mm -hmm. someone like Rodney find utility in Marx's method? What was it about dialectical materialism for Rodney? That he found useful in assessing the conditions of black folk?
0: Yeah. I mean, let me just say I am not the I have not read like every letter Marx ever wrote. And I'm not you know, I'm <laughs> not one advice, of those. So <laughs> <laughs> you know, Marx is never my hill to die on. However, like Rodney, I think Marx, the method that Marx provided and the and the tools that Marxism is is extremely useful, extremely useful, right? And so Rodney is attracted to Marxism and to the Marxist method because it highlights class struggle in historical context. And that's really important for the African continent because Africa was thought to not have a history, right? This was the line, not just by racists and white supremacists and colonizers, but also at the time by a large majority of European um, Marxists themselves and leftists. They did not view Africa as having a history because they view history as the history of class struggle. And they didn't believe that there was class struggle in any regard in Africa. And so what Rodney does is he takes Marxism and takes Mar- Marxist meth- uh, methodology and sort of <laughs> flips it on its head. And is like, actually, the history of colonization and imperialism is the history of class struggle. What are you talking about? You know, this is deeply profound. This is very profound. Because one, on its surface, it is rewriting historical myths and sort of rewriting the historical narrative of Africa and the African diaspora as well from, from a place of very rigorous study. Um, and it's rewriting these narratives that have emanated from both left and right. And that still to this day, in some regards, do. Um, the other thing is like dialectical materialism puts a great emphasis on understanding the interplay between material conditions and social relations. And that social relations aspect is so key because we have a race of people who were en masse enslaved because of their race in many regards and for economic reasons. So in order to understand that process and that history, you have to understand, like I said, this interplay between the material conditions So that would be like the economic motivations that Europe had to colonize and enslave Africa and the social relations. So what was the impact and the effect on that people, on that population and on that continent? And Rodney spends a great deal of time showing the multitude of ways that European colonization and underdevelopment absolutely ruptured social life, social society um, and civil society across the continent and virtually all aspects the other thing is you know in order to understand the origins of race and racial inequality as we call it nowadays you know you have to have a material analysis right if your answer is not going to be that black people and africans are just ontologically inferior if you want a better answer than that which you should i hope all listeners want a better answer than that um you have to you i do hope so (laughs) (laughs) you know but think about it if you do not have a material uh, materialist analysis or dialectical approach to the history of africa you are left to blame africans for their own oppression and that's a very brief way of putting it but it's simply the truth i think Walter Rodney found a lot of utility because it was marxism provides a very comprehensive framework for understanding and analyzing the historical, the material conditions that shape the experiences of Africans, like I said, on the continent and in the diaspora. I also think Rodney employs dialectical materialism specifically in how Europe underdeveloped Africa to demonstrate how European development and African underdevelopment were two sides of the same historical process, right? Like the, with Africa being dependent on Europe that this is not a sort of creation of happenstance. This didn't just occur out of the sky one day. This is like an intentional process that has been put in place and has been has remained in place, right? We now live in a uh, sort of neo-colonial dominated world. But in order to really show that this is a relationship, that Africa and Europe are in a relationship with one another, they're not in fixed positions of power, right? In order to show that relationship, you really do need a dialectical approach because that is in itself the central contradiction and conflict right there. The richer Europe gets, the poorer Africa gets. The more and more slaves which are taken from the Gold Coast or the Guinea Coast or all the cross West and Central Africa, the larger and larger and larger towns like Bordeaux and Seville Seville or the London docks get. The central bank of Amsterdam and Britain uh, Britain at different times, had stolen so much gold from Africa that the very first minted gold coins were called the Guinea. They literally named it after where the stolen, wow. right, they named it after where the stolen gold came from. And then I think Rodney also finds Marxism very useful for understanding sort of, or thinking about the psychological impact and this, the the creation of racial hierarchy and racial superiorities in, in European thinking. So he uses the example of, you know, imagine you are a dock worker in any of those cities I just named, Seville, Bordeaux, the London docks, and you live a probably pretty abysmal life. And around you, you know, there's just a few docks, some big boats that come in and bring maybe some sugar cane and some other things every day. But the more and more that black people, Africans come through in chains, the more and more you are seeing your conditions rise and the more and more you are associating these Africans with the opposite, right? And so you quite literally over a 5, 10, 15 year period can see an entire city spring up. The buildings of New York, right, were laced (laughs) with the profits of slavery. So you see see these um, massive cities and this massive development taking place and you associate it With this idea of your own superiority and so he even offers an explanation of sort of what we now today call the white working class um but why you know a european working class individual may still think of themselves as superior so anyway and i also you know there's a speech of his it's also printed as an essay in the in the new collection um decolonial marxism but it's called marxism and african liberation and walter rodney he answers this central question that we're talking about now, probably a lot better than I am. But um, I would recommend all the readers go and listen to that. And in that essay, Walter Rodney emphasizes the importance of Marxism as a method that is, as he puts it, independent of time and place, which means that you can apply it to various historical contexts and geographical locations. At the time that he wrote this, there was a massive debate taking place you had half of the continent having decolonization movements and looking towards sort of Marxist or socialist or maybe even nationalist tendencies, and so there was this debate: like, is Marxism relevant for Africa? Why? Why are? Why is? It, why are we doing this? You know, let's. And he gives this speech at this conference, and he says, like, y'all are fools. Of course, it's relevant, and here's why. And so, yeah, it, for him, the the relevance is that it can be applied to so many different contexts. He tackles straight on the idea that it's Eurocentric and calls the bluff on that. He says, you know, you don't say that about gravity because Newton discovered it or whatever, right? And he also points out that after Marx's death, other thinkers also recognize the value of applying the Marxist method to different contexts, like the USSR, China, Vietnam, later Cuba, expanding the like scope and relevance of marxism right and so that felt like a little bit of rambling but i hope i answered not at your all question. no 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 not at all <laughs> that
1: was dope i'm like enamored i'm like this is what i want to hear <laughs> no thank you and i yeah. think why so appreciate about rodney he, again he answers for us so many questions that you hear reactionaries right-wing folk folk and people who want to know more oh why isn't it that Africa can become a superpower in the way China did or Russia. And these Mm -hmm. people were all colonized. And one of the things that Rodney does uh, in How You Undevelop Africa, he speaks about the drain that slavery caused did not allow Africa to develop a labor-intensive model of development. And I find that really interesting because when all the time people ask this question to me, I'm saying, listen, you have to understand the legacies of slavery are different to legacies of colonialism. Yes, there's overlap, but what it does mm-hmm. in terms of productive forces, it doesn't allow Africa to develop in the same way. And I find Rodden does that so explicitly and so in a way
0: that's truly insightful. I think that's a beautiful point as well. And he takes it one step further to say that not only not only does... So he shows that before contact with Europeans, Africa was developing and it was trending instead of towards a European capitalist or European monarchy style of government, they were trending towards communalism and that something that had they been left untampered possibly could have developed into something that we would today call socialism, right? And I think it's important that I frame it like that because we can't use today's terms to talk about 500 years ago necessarily. But he shows that not only was African development halted by Europe, but there was actually regression. They regressed in several departments. For example, technologically, Africa, across, across West Africa particularly, there was iron te- iron smelting technology. Long before Europe had ever introduced iron smelting in Europe or really had a grasp on iron technology, it was Parts of Africa and Japan and China. Um, what happens is, like you said, it removes the, so much of the productive force and the labor force. I mean, people need to, th- and Rodney again drives this point home, they need to understand that enslavement, this is millions of usually younger, usually able bodied, often men or masculine individuals. But there's a particular role in the labor force that the individuals who are taken for slavery would have played in development. So not only are they halting development and causing regression, the third point is that they also are removing the opportunity for development. They're removing the opportunity for technological and economic advancement and development. And so, yeah, that's just a really great point that you just made.
1: No, thank you for expanding on that as well. So I guess we've spoken about it a lot in reference to but Rodney's goes to goes to text is that everyone seems to know is how Europe underdeveloped Africa and the word underdeveloped is deployed advisedly to show as you said dialectical relationship between development and underdevelopment my question here is what was Rodney attempting to do with this book
0: Mm. yeah I mean that's that's a big question I don't think I can give it the fullest justice you know because I can't transport into Walter Rodney's mind. <laughs> of course. But, you know, I think there's a few different main themes that he was really trying to break down. The first and the most obvious is to really expose and explain the, the historical roots of African underdevelopment. How did Africa as a whole, as a continent and a diaspora, people need to keep in mind that when Rodney says Africa, he often and is usually including the diaspora. He want how did they get to the position that they're in economically, culturally, spiritually, financially? All of these things, right? So, what are the historical roots of the contemporary state of African development? And like you said, that could be as expansive as religion, education. He talks about the damage that colonial education systems did to development. There's a, a lot to that, right? So, exposing those historical roots. The next, I think, is challenging really Eurocentric narratives of African history um, like I said earlier, including Eurocentric Marxist Marxist interpretations. There I think at times is and you could probably agree or attest, there's often times between the notion of sort of anti colonial and anti capitalist mm-hmm. um you know I see them as one in the same because an anti-colonial struggle is inherently an anti-capitalist struggle. But, you know, not everyone s- sees that the same way and especially not at the time in the 1960s and 70s when Rodney was active, were they seeing it that way? And so by exposing and challenging these sort of Eurocentric narratives of African history, he's also putting a call out to his contemporaries on the left. He's um, calling for a complete reintroduction to the history of Africa, to the politics of Africa, how we engage with this, with this continent and even the very idea of Africa. And I think one of the most important sort of things he was attempting to do that he does, in my opinion, better than anyone else I think of, well, I, I like Samir Amin too, but I think Rodney, I'm, I'm more of a Rodneyist, yes, but um, he, <laughs> no shade, but
1: he, I mean, <laughs> just the fact, Samir, Samir, I mean, sometimes those those uh, formulas, sometimes they'd be tripping me out.
0: Yeah, I think he, I think, <laughs> I think he gets very technical with it. Yeah, extremely technical at times but there's a lot of value to his work so I'm not shitting on him. Like, Absolutely. So I, I don't want <laughs> I'm sure there's someone like on Twitter or something who's going to just like drag me for that but um, <laughs> I think Rodney also, he does a really beautiful detailed job nuanced job of really illustrating the dialectical relationship between Europe and Africa and more specifically between European development and African underdevelopment. I, like I said, we take this notion of underdevelopment for granted nowadays. But Rodney did something quite groundbreaking by writing this. This was at a time when underdevelopment underdevelopment theory was emerging. You also had the emergence of sort of a world systems theory, which some people like Jesse Benjamin would argue that Walter Rodney was maybe like the the origins of that. And so this idea of looking at two places, you know, in this dialectical relationship in the manner that Rodney did it with this analysis of colonialism and slavery was very new, but beyond like its newness, it was just deeply profound. Um, And then finally, I I think he was attempting, and I think it's very clear to anyone who's read the book, especially the final chapters, he's advocating for African self-determination and socialism. He makes this, I don't know, some copies of the book are like 300 plus pages, 400, it's a long book, but he makes this grand argument in detail with almost, it's almost impenetrable, right? Because he's citing and sourcing just, I mean, just as a fun fact, Walter Rodney has, he, he taught himself languages like Italian and Spanish and Portuguese because he wanted to be able to redirect sources and not have to rely on bourgeois interpretations. Wow, Right. How many languages have listeners taught themselves to be able to write a book? <laughs> For real? For real? And, and so he, he's the reason Ultimately, that he's doing all of this writing and all this history and, you know, it is because he's, he's using that as a basis to advocate for African self-determination and socialism. He's saying, given like the material history of African dependency, as I just illustrated in 300 pages, this is why the only answer is a united socialist pan-African movement, right? He's actually... Uh, using the argument isn't even necessarily just for academics, but it's for organizing. He's saying, look, I just laid it out for you. This is why we got to, um, you know, unite. And so I I think those are some of the main things he's trying to do with how you're... Thank you. Thank you so much. And we've often spoken, we we have spoken
1: about how you've underdeveloped Africa, but we know Rodney's authorship is so Mm -hmm. much more than that. So I guess if someone wants to get a better understanding to Rodney, what are some of the texts you recommend and why?
0: yeah I mean that's that's um a great question. Rodney has I don't know a dozen plus books. I don't know the exact number. I probably should at this point, but uh, <laughs> you know, his magnum opus, his grand best best book, you know, the big one, everyone knows, and that is I don't want to say is his best work, but honestly it's probably his best work is How Europe Underdeveloped Africa for all the reasons that we've discussed in this podcast. Um, It's also on audiobook now, as of, I think, a few years ago. I recommend, it's, I can remember the first time I read Malcolm X's autobiography and feeling deep inside that something in me had changed, right, like, Mm -hmm. it put me on a different trajectory in a different direction politically, Mm -hmm. you know, like in all the ways few books have made me feel like that. The Quran, <laughs> yeah. you know, like it's a, it's like a small handful, but the, the how Europe underveloped underdeveloped Africa was very much that for me, it completely changed everything that I thought that I had knew about Marxism and the way that the world works and functions in history and African history. And so there's a reason why that book is so popular. Another one that is my favorite to recommend to people who are new, newer to sort of, leftist writing and these politics and maybe really new to African history and stuff is Groundings with My Brothers, which was published in 1969. It's a collection. Groundings is, is honestly, actually, I might put it slightly above How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, only because it reads so conversationally. And to understand why that is, you have to really understand how this book came together. So I said that while earlier at the beginning of the episode, I said while he was in Jamaica, he was giving Groundings where he was in open air places and giving these public lectures with community, very similar to like a Palo Freire popular education style, um, you know, with like cultural circles and stuff. And so these collect the collection and groundings for the most part are those talks that he gave transcribed. And so they're meant to be read and understood by anyone. You don't have to be an academic to understand it. You don't have to be a professor or an organizer of 20 years or whatever and I think there's a very profound value in that because he's able to take very, in my opinion, very large topics, right? Like he's talking about Pan-Africanism and African history. He's talking about Black power and how, how Black power applies to the Caribbean. He's talking about, um, you know, how in Jamaican society, he's talking about neocolonialism and how in Jamaican society... Despite the veneer of independence, everything is mostly still ran by Europeans and mulattoes. So Groundings, I usually recommend it be the first Rodney book people read, actually. There's also Walter Rodney Speaks, The Making of an African Intellectual. Um, It's a collection of, well, it was a series of interviews that he recorded in a hotel room with several individuals, including C.T. Vivian and Vincent Harding, I believe, as well. And it's him, again, extremely conversationally, because there's literally an edited version of recorded conversations, like 20 plus hours in this hotel room, where he talks on everything from his upbringing in Guyana and his family, to his love for Lenin. This is where he first formulates his notion of the guerrilla intellectual. Um, which I later have I've done some research on, and I have new work coming out on that, inshallah, soon. And so, hey. yeah, shout out to that. Let's, you know, a plug there.
1: <laughs>
0: the exclusive. Um, but Walter Rodney, <laughs> Speak, Walter Rodney Speaks was not as widely circulated and printed as his other books. And so it's a little bit of the stepchild, but I definitely always try to tell people to read it. And it's phenomenal every time. There's also a history of the Guyanese working people He gives a really strong historical examination of labor and resistance and labor resistance and race and colonialism in Guyana. And then the last one I'll mention is one of the newer ones, because at the Walter Rodney Foundation, we've been working to print some of his books that maybe didn't make it to light before he died, or books that need to be reprinted so people can rediscover them, is the Russian Revolution. Walter Rodney, when he was in Tanzania, actually... He taught a class on the Russian Revolution, which is really cool when you think about it. He's in this post, you know, post socialist revolution. He's he's inside of an active African socialist experiment, actually, in Tanzania, teaching a class about the USSR at a time when the USSR was like still alive, you know, in, in some regards. And so the Russian Revolution book was a combination of the notes that he had prepared for that class, plus the beginnings of a transcript that were in connection with those notes. And it was obvious when people went back and when we went back and sort of looked at it that he was clearly planning to write this book on it and create a book that views the Russian Revolution from the Third World and from the colonized world. And it is probably, I would say, my favorite book on the Russian Revolution I have ever read. And I have only read a handful, so let me not give the fa- a false impression. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, I would say that's the last one that I want to mention, just because if people are into that kind of stuff, or even if you're not, I mean, the book just has lessons. Even if you're not interested in Russian history, per se, I'm certainly not. It's it's just a really, really, really good book. Um, so yeah, those. are I mean, it's a broad overview of the text. People can go to his Wikipedia. You can also go to the Walter Rodney Foundation website. And we have a pretty comprehensive list of his publications. And we have new works coming out soon. I think something I should mention, actually, let me not not mention this because, you know, I helped work on it. So let me just brag. But (laughs) Walter Rodney, the last when he when he was assassinated in 1980, he was actually working on a series of children's books. And most people don't know this. Yeah. Most people don't know this. Walter Rodney loved children and the youth, and he was extremely motivated by the youth. And so there's Kofi Badu out of Africa. And ooh, what is the other one called? Well, I can't think of the name of the other. Oh, La- Lakshmi out of India. Wow. And they're written. Yeah, they're written probably for maybe like a middle, you know, fifth to eighth grade kind of age. And mm-hmm. um, they follow these two children. So Kofi Badu out of Africa follows this young boy who is snatched into slavery and it literally just follows the history of enslavement. But from this perspective of this 13 year old boy, truly powerful. And then there's, there's also Lakshmi out of India, which does the same thing. So remember in Guyana, it's like there's African Guyanese and Indo Guyanese. So that's why Mm -hmm. he's specifically writing about someone out of, Africa and India. And so it follows this little girl, Lakshmi, as she's forced to like flee her home and, you know, face some of the ravages of colonization. I had the privilege of helping to edit both of those books for republication, and they're about to come out soon. I, even me as an adult, I- Big up you, big up you. (laughs) No, all all praise to the most high, but you know, they're called um, children's books, and I was reading it like on the edge of my seat, like, what do you, you know, this is not, (laughs) it's like children's book in Walter Rodney terms, but for the rest of us, it's a really amazing read. So yeah, those are two really important texts. And I'm hoping we can get those pretty widely circulated because it would be really cool for people with children to use those as political education for their children. That's sort of what it was made for. And the last thing I'll say about it, shout out to Patricia and Asha Rodney. Those two books are going to be added this upcoming year, if I'm not mistaken, to the curriculum in Guyana. And for the first time ever, Walter Rodney will be on the curriculum in Guyana, his home country. And so really exciting stuff.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I mean, this has been a truly inspiring conversation. I mean that. I truly, truly mean that. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm going to post Moose's socials and reach out, get in touch with them check Mm -hmm. out check out what they're writing and so on and until next time peace out peace